0: I'm David Kasher, a rabbi at IKAR in Los Angeles, and together we're gonna to study the weekly Torah portion of the Parsha and figure out why the Torah really is the best book ever. Okay, let me share with you one of the most important words in rabbinic theology. The word is kivyachol. That quick jumble of syllables is a a verb, with two prefixes attached, and that means as if such a thing could be. ki yachol This magic word allowed the rabbis to do an incredible thing, which was to go into great detail describing God in very concrete, human language, and then simultaneously warn you never to take these descriptions literally. This balancing act was important to them because on the one hand, the rabbis of the Talmudic period were seeking to cultivate a a new and very intimate personal relationship with God. But on the other hand, they were totally committed to the basic principle of Jewish theology from the Torah itself that God could never be represented in an image or ever understood in any human category at all. So. They wanted to find a way to relate to God as if God were a parent, or a king, or a teacher, a protector, a friend, even a lover, but still maintain that God was ultimately totally abstract, mysterious, and unknowable. And they managed to do all this brilliantly with the help of one little word, kivayachl, Let's see how it works. In this week's Parsha, the children of Israel stand primed to enter into the land of Israel. But first, they're given all kinds of warnings about how they must act when they get there and what curses they should expect if they don't. And chief among these curses is, of course, exile from that very land. But after all these stern words of doom, there is a glimmer of hope the promise of an eventual redemption. The eternal your God will return you from your captivity and have mercy upon you and return and gather you from all the nations where the eternal your God has scattered you. So no matter what happens, no matter how bad it gets, one day we will be redeemed. Okay, this is a notion that has animated Jewish yearnings throughout their long and often difficult history in the diaspora, but there's a strange linguistic issue in the original Hebrew. It's a little technical, but the the verb for return, shav, which is usually translated as God will return you, is actually not written in the form you use to say God returned something, but instead the way you would say God returned from somewhere. So it seems like the verse should actually read the eternal, your God will return from captivity. But that doesn't make sense. God will return. Where does God need to return from? And how could God be in captivity? Rashi steps in to deal with these questions. And as usual, he finds his answers in earlier rabbinic sources the Lord your God will return, shav, from captivity. Hayalo lichtov It should have written, God will return you, heshiv, from captivity. Ravoteinu lamdu mikan, our rabbis learned from here that, as if such a thing could be, shruya im Yisrael b'tzarat gulatam, that the divine presence stays with Israel in the pain of exile. And when they are redeemed, God writes it as a redemption for God as well, so that God returns with them. Okay, your jaw should be on the floor right now. God is in exile. God Almighty, out of sympathy for us, goes into captivity with us, suffers with us, longs with us to be redeemed. And when we finally make it back, God returns with us. It's such a heartbreakingly touching image to think that the omnipotent ruler of the universe decides to descend to this earthly reality and to take on a self-imposed exile just to be with the people. This portrait of divine love provides just the comfort we need to get us through our own suffering. But wait, comforting it may be, but as we've already said, it, it doesn't make sense. First of all, God is the one who put us in exile in the first place, so isn't it weird for God to feel bad for us and try to share our burden? But more than that, there's the basic theological problem. We don't really believe that God can be in exile, do we? In fact, we don't really believe that God goes anywhere at all. That kind of human language doesn't apply to God. Even if we were to try to somehow describe God's actions, Whatever the Almighty One does, God surely doesn't return from captivity. Right? Well, k'vayachol. God doesn't literally go into exile, but it's as if such a thing could be. Okay, but what does that really mean? So, for help with that, we turn once again to one of the greatest Jewish philosophers and a favorite thinker of mine, Rabbi Yehuda Lowy, the great Maharal of Prague, who wrote a running commentary on Rashi's commentary, a super commentary. So just like Rashi writes about things that read a little strange in the Torah, so the Maharal writes about things that read a little strange in Rashi's commentary. And this question of how to make sense of a far out rabbinic interpretation is just the sort of thing that the maharal is best at answering. So here's his explanation of how God can be said to go into exile. Ikara perush, the idea here is that God created the world according to an order. Bara al In which everything is in the place God put it. And exile is a change in the order of the world. Wherein something is taken from its designated place in the order of things. Agalut Hu Shinui Seder So exile is the opposite of God's will for the order of the world. And when something returns to its place, so too, God's vision returns and settles back into place." So, he's saying, "Any form of exile is a deviation from the way things ought to be, the way that God intended. Something is out of place in the divine schema. And when that thing returns to its intended place, or those people return to their place, it's also a return of God's will to its fullest manifestation. And in that sense, God returns. So, the description of God returning from exile is actually true, it's just not a literal, physical return. This is a classic move for the Maharal, to explain how the rabbis image is actually meant to convey an important philosophical truth about the nature of existence. He wants to show how they weren't just playing around with these intimate depictions of God in order to make us feel good, but as a way of saying something conceptually sophisticated about reality in a language we can easily relate to, essentially like philosophy packaged in stories. But then the Maharal goes a step further. And offers a second explanation, this one specially reserved for the redemption of Israel. And this time he comes closer to saying that the story itself is true. But as for Israel, he says, their exile affects the very glory of God. Hagalut shelahem <laughs> magia le'etzem k'vodoh. Because God is called the God of Israel. And since the order of creation from the start was that Israel should be in the Holy Land, So when they go into exile, because the glory of God is bound up in them, it is as if God is exiled with them. Did your jaw drop again? Now, he still isn't saying that God is actually going into captivity, like some gigantic being trapped in a cage. But insofar as God is a part of us, because we manifest God through our relationship with God, so when we are in exile, God is in exile. And in that sense, it's almost as if our own bodies literally cast God out of alignment and our return can bring God back into place. Almost. Notice that the Maharal includes his own as if clause, ke'ilu, as if God is exiled with him, Because the truth is you can't really say anything about God. Unless you know the magic word. Best Book Ever was produced by Ben Cooley and edited by Vera Blossom. And our theme song is Pete by Hillel Tigay. You can listen to more of his beautiful music on iTunes and Spotify. And while you're there, why not subscribe to Best Book Ever, if you haven't already. If you're interested in supporting this podcast and our work, you can visit us at ecar.org and donate or Venmo us at ecarla. That's I-K-A-R-L-A. Thanks a lot and see you next week.